0: You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. We're going to read two texts, and we're, we're covering John 19, 23 to 27 this morning. But before we read that, I'd like you to go to Philippians chapter 2. I'll read a little bit longer text before we go read the text. in John, we'll ask God to speak to us, to teach us. We know he's speaking, so we'll also... Ask him to help us to listen. Philippians chapter 2 is where we will begin before we go back to John and pretty well camp there the rest of the time. The book of Philippians is a very personal letter that Paul wrote to a church where I mean his his first encounter this is the first time the gospel went on to the continent of Europe continent of Europe where a lot of our ancestors were when the gospel came into this place called Philippi where there weren't even enough Jewish men, monotheists in the town to have a synagogue. And so there were a handful of people who met by a river for prayer. This is where a a demon was cast out of a slave girl, where a, a suicidal jailer became one of the founding members of the church at Philippi. This is where Paul and Silas were singing praises to God at midnight. It's structured a little bit different than, than Romans and Ephesians and some of other Paul's letters because he, he instead of giving us the theology and, and then the practical theology at the end, he's weaving it into the entire letter. So I'll read beginning at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love united in spirit intent on one purpose do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others have this attitude in yourselves and here's where we make the transition is unselfishness just a christian rule or is this a, dri- a gospel-driven life that comes out of following Jesus? So we read, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we go to John chapter 19 and we find the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross. We find his mother and his aunt and the woman out of whom he had driven seven demons and his first cousin, John, all all standing there and John's mom, uh, Aunt Salome, are all at the foot of the cross, and here is the record from John chapter 19, beginning at verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Let's pray and then you can have a seat. Our fathers, we've already asked, we need you to instruct us, not just so we can come away from here, having had our attention kept for 45 minutes. Bring us to see that this is your word, the word of the Lord. And as we bless you for giving us your word, one of the ways we demonstrate our thankfulness is to listen, to revere what you've said, to apply what you've said to our lives, to, to, to follow you. So plant those seeds down deep in us, we pray in your son's holy name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm guessing that in this kind of church, knowing what I know about a lot of you, that a significant number of you have read um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It is a, a, a book that had a a, a big impact as uh, former atheist C.S. Lewis was giving radio broadcasts to... To England during a very during some very dark days, and and out of those radio lectures, uh, the book *Mere Christianity* was uh, put into print. In that book, uh, Lewis described what he called the three parts of morality. Now, now hang on with me. I've got a picture of boats here, so it's got to be something you can grab onto, right? He he talked about three parts of morality and he was, he was not a moralist. He wasn't saying you do these things in order to be saved, quite the opposite. But here's what he did in, in that chapter. And I'm, I'm going to make the transition to the story of the cross and applications to, to our response as those who have bowed the knee to Jesus as savior and king. He says, if, if you're directing human behavior, So if we've got a big group of people, and a lot of you have been in leadership positions where you say, it is just impossible, whether it's in a workplace or a church environment, to to direct a group of people. Lewis is talking about a world of people. And he said, if you want to direct people morally, uh, it's kind of like a fleet of ships. He says, in the first place, the ships have to get along with one another. Okay, So they have to have a common direction. We're all going the same way. Uh, We're not running into each other. The second place, the ships must be mechanically operable, <laughs> so uh, they, they have to work, uh, and, and along with that is a common purpose, which we'll address in just a moment. And he said, finally, they have to be directed by noble purposes, and I'm, I'm calling that common owner. So I'll tell you why this is important as we're going into this text. You're kind of wondering, right? Right how I'm gonna get from ships to the cross. I'm, I'm making the transition and if, if you, we don't get there, it, it, it's, it's my fault, okay? When you apply it to our lives in this world that belongs to the living God, you look at our world spends most of its time trying to get the first part in order, right? We, we want everybody going the same direction. We want unity. We want... Peace, and the way we often define that is the, the absence of war, anything we can do to prevent this. So we point the ships in the direction we want them to go, and we assume that everything is well. So, for instance, uh, organizations like the, uh, the big one that's based in, in New York City, the United Nations, um, we're often scolded in, in settings like that to lay down our arms and just be nice. And we assume that, uh, well, most of us don't like killing. So it it seems like a noble purpose. We've got all the ships lined up so they're not colliding and that just seems sufficient until you see that people keep killing each other, even after they promise not to. And that's what takes you to the second part of Lewis's illustration. People get along well with each other when they share a common purpose. In other words, we've got all these ships and we're going the same direction, but but the only way to keep us from killing each other so we get along is that we're, we're going the same direction and we know why we're going the same direction. The internal driving force is a shared one. So if you want the ships in your fleet to stop running into each other, Their engine rooms and their steering mechanisms have to be tuned properly. Their bearings have to be set at the same place. And you know, when you're working with people, we could agree with what Paul wrote in Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He talked about being of one mind and one purpose when you say, there it is. There it is. We're going the same direction. We have the the same purpose. We're not attacking each other. We're we're just, everything's going to go swimmingly in this world. But I'll tell you why Lewis pointed out the third leg uh, of this stool. What if you successfully keep the ships from colliding by uniting them with the same purpose, so there's steps one and two, but you find out that their purpose is directed by an evil leader who is sending those ships to destroy every other fleet of ships in the ocean. We can all be united as uh, I, I've heard people say, well, you know, um, our husband and wife and we prayed about this and we both agreed. So because we both agreed, we knew this must be the will of God. And uh, a smart aleck pastor, and this one wasn't me. I, I say things like this too often, but the smart aleck pastor said to the couple, oh, you mean like uh, Ananias and Sapphira? Because they, they were in agreement too, weren't they? When you, when you have agreement and direction for an evil purpose, something is wrong. In other words, it really does make a difference who owns the ships. We wrongly assume that our vessels are independent of all the others and that our own behavior makes no difference as long as we allow the other ships to stay afloat. But you know, this is not the case if we are owned by another, if we have been purchased by another, if if our lives are to be directed by another. C.S. Lewis put it this way. If somebody else made me for his own purposes... And I shall have a lot of duties which I should not have if I simply belonged to myself. And that takes us to what's happening on the cross of Christ. This particular scene is one that's familiar to to most of you if you've read your Bible at all. And uh, I, as an aside, I will give a commercial for the Bible reading schedules that are in the foyer. You're really not that far behind if you want to jump into that through the Bible in a year schedule. If you've never done that before, it is transforming because God's word is living and active. So I would encourage you, even if you're not doing that one, to, to find a way to systematically hear from God on a daily basis. That's what Christians do. So when you look at this particular text as Jesus is hanging on the cross, John, who was there as an eyewitness, and yes, he's moved along by the Spirit like Matthew and uh, Mark and Luke, who weren't standing at the foot of the cross. They, they wrote accurately because the Spirit moved them too. But John has, if I can say a leg up, John was there. John was there, and so what he is writing is a, a little bit different than the other gospel accounts. He's watching what's happening as the Lord Jesus is hanging on the cross suffering as all three of these men are hanging on the cross pushing themselves up for every gasp of air they could get because of the beating because of the torture they they would die of asphyxiation if they weren't pushing themselves up. John's looking at Jesus and he's listening to the words Jesus said but he's also looking at the foot of the cross where the guys are playing games When they had crucified Jesus, meaning when they had put him on the cross, when they had hoisted up that cross piece that his hands were nailed to and brought his knees up and nailed his feet to that pillar, it says they took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Uh, Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. John's giving us some important details to this story that I think are, are worth noting. And so we'll talk about this first. One of the perks, if you were a Roman soldier on crucifixion detail, and it happened regularly, uh, the Lord Jesus mentioned it during his ministry and everybody understood what he was talking about, taking up your cross and bearing that. One of the perks of a Roman soldier was acquiring the clothing of executed prisoners. It's kind of like spoils of war, but this is, you know, they're not going to need them anymore. And so they would humiliate, uh, the crucified. These were the worst pests, the insurrectionists, the murderers, the people that, that the Roman government wanted to rid the earth of. So they were so devalued that it really didn't matter that their clothes were stripped from them, but there was value. Uh, in In the first century, to have a spare garment to have a change of clothes was a big deal in, in fact, all of Bible history, if you look at how a change of clothes was valued, even in the book of judges, uh, a change of clothes was a, a very valuable thing before factories could could whip out woven and, and sewn garments. The outer cloak actually was a sewn gown, and having seams. And and we're going to look in just a moment at, at just some of the things Jesus wore, references to Jesus' clothing during his ministry, just to shed some light on what's happening here at the foot of the cross. The sewn gown could easily be torn apart. But the, the inner gown, the tunic that was woven next to the, worn next to the skin, and that was a woven garment, it didn't have seam. So rather than unravel it, it's like, well, let's, uh, let's roll the dice. Let's flip a coin. Let's draw straws. See who gets that. And so this was the game being played. They tore apart the outer cloak. They gambled for the tunic. Jesus was likely dressed in the fashion, based on the language here, common to the people in his culture. And so uh, people quibble over over fashion and today it's like, oh, these people are too modern or they're too old-fashioned. The Lord Jesus would have fit right into his culture with the hairstyle and with the the clothing and everything. And as you read this particular text, uh, we're pointed back to a few places in the New Testament that talk about what Jesus wore. Uh this is the the verse that we're looking at right now verse 23 that they ripped up up the the uh, outer cloak they they cast lots for the tunic Mark chapter 9 and uh the other gospels give this record too but I just used Mark's gospel when Jesus went up on uh, on the mountain, and was transformed before the disciples. It doesn't say he changed clothes, but the appearance of his clothing, his garments became radiant and, and marks as exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. A, a reference to what Jesus was wearing. At one point, as the Lord Jesus is being hurried to heal a child, a woman who had, who had been very much. Uh, um, Suffering for 12 years. In fact, the length of time the little girl who was ailing had lived 12 years, could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. That tells us that the Lord Jesus wore a common Jewish rabbi's garment. He had the tzitzis, the, the little tassels on his garment, which would have befitted a rabbi, uh, something that the Pharisees wore. And she touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately she was healed. Matthew says, at one point in Jesus' ministry, and I do not believe the other Gospels record this one, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. And then one we've already read in John's gospel. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. He took off that outer cloak and wrapped a towel around himself and began washing the disciples' feet. And one more from Luke's gospel. Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. There was a period of time where they actually put an extra garment on the Lord Jesus on this day, but the purpose of that was to mock him. So here are the soldiers at the foot of the cross and John's not only watching what they were doing, John's listening in on the conversation. And he says, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my art of garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. This actually comes from Psalm 22, which I will remind you moments before, the Lord Jesus had begun reciting or singing Psalm 22 from the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And everybody there who had read scripture, the Roman soldiers wouldn't have known, but everyone who had read scripture said, that's that's Psalm of David. That's one of the suffering servant psalms. And what's puzzling to us why David was writing this Why had God forsaken him? And some of the people misunderstood. This was where the first time when they offered him something to drink, this is is where some thought he was calling for Elijah to come and rescue him. But it's very possible that the Lord Jesus just continued to recite this psalm or to sing this psalm as John is standing at the foot of the cross and he's watching what's happening as he's listening to what Jesus has said. And then he says, Psalm 22 says they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So many pieces of the puzzle must have been coming together, at least for John, if not for some of the other onlookers. They didn't knowingly fulfill scripture, but their selfish actions played into the events that David prophetically described a thousand years earlier. If you contrast what is going on at the foot of the cross with what is being spoken from the cross, you have in a a microcosm, in just a tiny little piece, a picture of all of creation compared to the creator. You have the, the sinless, spotless creator right there, giving, 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 not just himself for the sins of his people, not, not simply the world rescue, but caring for someone that, as, as an onlooker, his mother. And then at the foot of the cross, you have the picture of you and me and all the rest of the world saying, just, I just want what's due me. I just want what's mine. That's all I care about. I, I value me. I value what makes me happy. And I, I don't value anything else that's going on around me. And so, John, we don't have to make this up because the contrast is there. There's Jesus suffering and dying, the soldiers at the foot of the cross taking all of his earthly possessions. And what's the Lord Jesus doing? I mean, honestly, If you realize that you're dying, that you don't have much breath left, if you have known people who who were dying and knew they were dying, are they really worked up about somebody squeezing their toothpaste tube in the middle or using their hairbrush or their toothbrush for that matter? Earthly things fade. The value of those things fade. You look at what the, the soldiers treasured. And then you look at what Jesus treasured and then you see the difference between you and me and Jesus. So John's just watching and listening. And he says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Uh, there are a number of theories about the women standing near the cross. And this, this is not, what I'm giving you are Steve's observations, not a thus saith the Lord. But, but we're given the privilege of being interpreters. And so we're looking at the scripture and saying, what is going on here? We have the advantage of looking at Matthew's account and Mark's account and Luke's account and John's account, in addition to having some historic records that support those things. One theory suggests that the words of this verse can allow for only three women. And what that means then is Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, is one person. And then Mary Magdalene. And I'll tell you, I don't think the scripture supports that. And I don't think logic does either. Because this means that Mary had a sister named Mary. Miriam was a, a very common Hebrew name. So it's like, it's, it's like the TV show. This is, is Daryl, my brother, and my other brother, Daryl. Most people don't name two children the same name. So a better view of this is that John, the eyewitness, is recording the presence of four women, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary's unnamed sister, and by the way, we know her as Salome elsewhere. The wife of Clopas, who is named Mary, and Mary Magdalene. And I stuck Salome at the end. That should have been up there beside Mary's unnamed sister. So there are more than likely, if if you understand the four Gospels, the way they're played out for us, there are four women there. I'm going to give you An observation because that's our role here, right? To take apart the scriptures and and unpack what's being said here. It's good for us to observe some of the details. and, And this one in particular helps us appreciate Mary, the wife of Clopas. Clopas may be an alternative spelling of Cleopas. And you say, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Let me tell you why that's important. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, there was a guy named Cleopas who was depressed, who was very, very sad on Resurrection Sunday. And he was walking with a companion. We don't know who it was. And I'm, again, not saying that this is a thus saith the Lord. But it's very possible that Cleopas is walking with his wife on the first day of the week. And the Lord Jesus met them and closed off his identity to them for a time On the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to Cleopas and another disciple. And that second disciple may very well have been our Mary from the foot of the cross. That may seem insignificant until you realize that this Mary, if in fact she is the wife of Clopas or Cleopas, stayed near to Jesus while he was on the cross Didn't see him again until Sunday and the joy must have been a delight as she not only walked with him up to the cross and and to the point of his death, perhaps even among those who anointed his body for burial uh, quickly before he was put in the tomb. She may have been uh, the one, one of the first to whom Jesus revealed himself after he rose from the dead. Matthew and Mark also mentioned, by the way, that that a number of women were standing there watching. Uh, This is where Matthew's gospel gives us the woman's name, Salome, who is John's mom, uh, the wife of Zebedee, the mother of the apostles, James and John. And uh, I'll add this bit of, and I won't call it trivia, but uh, it, it is important that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John's mother, Salome... We're sisters, which means that Jesus and John are first cousins, which might help us to understand what we are about to read. John is standing at a distance. The four women are there at the cross. The Lord Jesus is not only reciting Psalm 22, he's caring for his mother. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, we've identified that other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved as the anonymous writer of the gospel that we've been studying for these last couple of years. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And that wasn't a disrespectful greeting. It's the same way the Lord Jesus talked to her when he started his ministry, when Mary, for whatever reason, was in charge of the wine. Maybe she was the mother of the bride. We don't really know why Mary was at that wedding of Cana and in charge of the wine, but she just went to Jesus and said, we're out of wine. And Jesus addressed her and said, woman, what does that have to do with me? This is, this is not, I don't, I don't call my wife that because culturally I, I don't say woman, unless I'm joking with her. We don't normally talk that way, but this was a respectful greeting, dear. Uh, so, when he said, woman, behold your son, he was talking about John. As a firstborn, it would have been the responsibility of the Lord to provide for his, his widowed mother. And we make those presumptions based on what we read elsewhere in the Gospels. There's no record of, of Joseph after Jesus was 12 years old. One question I had, and I asked it of my family recently, um, what about the other brothers? Jesus was born to a family with there was Joseph Jr. and and uh, there was uh, James, the half brother of Jesus. There was Jude or or Judas were other children of Joseph and Mary who had been born after after Jesus had born and there, had been born. And there were at least two other sisters. Jesus is born to a family that eventually had six, seven, eight children. Where were the others? Why is Jesus? committing his mother's care to his cousin. And I I have to say, I don't know. I can't answer that. But we do have to look in the scripture and say, well, uh, not only was it Jesus' responsibility to care for her as the firstborn, we know that for at least a portion of his earthly ministry, the brothers of Jesus remained in their unbelief. And yes, at least two of them came to faith and, and wrote books in spite of the Holy Spirit. James and John, or rather James and Jude in the New Testament were written by his half-brothers. But we don't know when that came about. It may have been some time after the resurrection. All we know is that the Lord Jesus committed the care of his mother to John. John would to be, was to be a suitable provider. And then he looked at John. He said to the disciple, John leaves his name out, behold your mother, look. He says to Mary, look, your son. He wasn't saying, look at me, your son. He was saying, there's a new relationship here. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. The statement implies that John had a home in Jerusalem. Uh, and history says that Mary spent out her days in Ephesus. The Bible does not say Mary was assumed into heaven and didn't die. Mary spent out her days in Ephesus, and if you read the book of Revelation, you realize that's where John spent out his days. He had been banished to Patmos, and history tells us that he survived and and, uh, spent out his days in Ephesus and did what the Lord Jesus said. Now, I'm going back to, to where we started, even though we have to start with the scripture and who God is, and then we move toward what do we do about it. I am saying, yes, the primary instruction that we're getting from this section of John's gospel is the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is everything But there are applications we make or we wouldn't have had all the details about the gospel given here. We wouldn't have Paul telling the church at Philippi, your attitude needs to be the same as Jesus' attitude who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Paul who is saying because of that you need to Run away from selfish ambition and vain conceit. And you need to be making, considering others better than yourselves. Esteeming others better than yourselves. And so I am arguing that there is a gospel-driven way to get the victory over your selfishness. And it comes back to the contrast between the one hanging on the cross and his words and his attitude. And you compare that to the ones at the foot of the cross and their words and their attitude there is a big difference. Please get this. There is a huge difference in what the Lord Jesus treasures and treasured as he hung on the cross and what the people of this earth at the foot of the cross treasure and treasured. Remember, the Lord Jesus is the one who said, where your heart is, or rather, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What do you value more than anything else. See, the gospel makes it so clear that Jesus died to rescue us from living for ourselves. You look at any trouble people have been in, whether it's the things that make national headlines or the, the police report in the Rice Lake chronotype, you see a lot of people who treasure themselves more than anything else or anyone. So you ask yourself, when you get to the the checkout line, you've got your cart, and and you see that there are 40 checkouts at Walmart, and like 13 is the only one open, and you see an elderly person coming toward checkout 13, and what do you do at that point in time? See, what we value is shown in where we park when we come to church. (laughs) Where am I going to put my car? And, and, and I think, well, I want to. Have you ever done this? I, I've done this. I'm just praying, Lord, that you would open up a parking spot right in front of where I am headed. Now, I'm not saying that we very naturally serve ourselves and we want the easy way out. We want it easy. But the point is this. When we treasure ourselves more than anything else, we wind up devaluing other people. That's why even the founders of our country, while I, I do not believe that all of them were followers of Christ, many of them were, and they recognize that it's not the government that gives us the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are God-given rights, and as soon as I trample yours and value me over you, somebody says there ought to be a law against that. Our founding fathers understood that, that treasure determines values and values determine behavior. You do what you do because you want what you want. And you want what you want because you think what you think. And you think what you think because you treasure what you treasure. And ultimately you treasure what you treasure because you worship where you worship. Happens in decisions in your home. What are we going to do tonight? Where are we going to go on vacation What are we going to have for supper? Who gets the last pork chop? What are we going to watch on Netflix? You you have all of these questions being raised and there are sometimes the, the ultimate decision is made by the whiniest person or the one who's going to throw the biggest fit if they don't get their way. Who is that at your house? If it's you, please soak this in because there's hope for you. You can be different as one who has not only bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but as one who is bit by bit being conformed to his image. Spending priorities, what do you treasure? Look at your checkbook. People still have those, right? Look at your account statement. So we contrast the self-focus with the other focus. And when you live with eternity's values, in view, do you know what's happening here? Earthly possessions are losing their attraction for Jesus. I, I don't think we can even say that the Lord Jesus didn't care what he wore. He, I'm sure he dressed neatly. I'm sure he, he, while he walked the earth, had good personal hygiene. I, I'm sure he didn't purposely go to the um, Nazareth Goodwill and find the junkiest, cheapest thing he could possibly find and by the way i'm i'm wearing a saver's suit just so you know <laughs> the lord jesus it wasn't that he didn't have earthly treasure ever the point is this how do i value that the real needs of people trump personal benefits earthly unkindnesses when you're when you're on the cross seem less important earthly relationships get set in a very different context. This part of the crucifixion narrative turns your attention back to Jesus calling his disciples to do what? Deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. And so that kind of no turning back actions that are really demanded by the cross of Christ. That's what's demanded of the disciples of Christ. If I am a Christian, that means a little Christ, I am following him. And I I am not just trying to be nice to people. I am saying I need the same mind and the same owner if there's going to be this kind of coexistence. We have to make sure that we are going the same direction, directed by the same person. So this is the no turning back action that the cross demands of disciples. Here they are. We really already went over these. You learn to treasure what will last. True? I spoke to someone who had been uh, told that he didn't have long to live and he said, I just, I looked at all the stuff in my hospital room and God, God graciously uh, allowed him to live many, many, many years is still living now, in fact. But he talked about looking at all of his stuff that he had with him at the hospital. And you talk about toothpaste, he's saying, I bet I'm not even gonna finish that tube of toothpaste. You look at all of the things that we're going to leave behind and, and you realize a cross-centered life brings me to treasure what's going to last. The value of material possessions fades as you prepare to leave them behind. You also learn to pity people who only have earthly treasure. You look at people who are throwing fits over food or parking spots, the people who are going nuts because somebody else was not real attentive and cut in front of them on the highway. You know road rage. You've either given it out or observed it. And you you look at this and you say, how valuable will that parking spot or, or that, that one, one slot up in the traffic jam really be a 100 years from now? Rather than getting angry at those people, it, we learn to say, like those soldiers at the foot of the cross, hearing the Lord Jesus at one point say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. We learn like Jesus to say, boy, Wouldn't it be horrible to have nothing but some pieces of fabric to set my affection on? This might keep you from fighting with others over things that are destined to burn, right? And there's one more, and we could make a bunch, I'm sure. You learn to elevate the needs of others above your own. This is cross centered living. It's what the Lord Jesus was doing here. It's the call of Philippians 2 and the rest of the New Testament. He died for me, so I no longer have to live for myself. He didn't just die to rescue me from the punishment that was due me for my sins. He died to rescue me from Steve, from selfish old life Steve. He died to rescue me so that that inside the body of Christ, I'm able to say, How can I serve? How can I make things easier for you? How can, I, how can I be used of Jesus to help you right now? Because that's what Christians do. You elevate the needs of others above your own because love requires action. Love requires putting the interests of others before yours. So we'll pause here before we stop and before we have communion and before we sing uh, a closing song. What about you? There are people who, who sincerely ask this question. Having, having been in in this church or another one like it for a long time and they hear time after time what Jesus did and they hear this call that I'll give now, right now, turn to Jesus, beg him to let you in, beg him for forgiveness. He won't turn you away. Believe the gospel. And people say, but I'm not sure how to do that. I mean, is it a special prayer I have to pray? And I'm not saying it's wrong to talk to him in prayer and ask him. But the bottom line is this, will you believe or not? Do you believe this? As Jesus asked Martha, do you? Right now, not a matter of a prayer you prayed in the past a confession of faith you made in the past, a class that you took in a church. It comes down to right between you and God. You are before his face right now and ultimately you will stand in his presence and give an account. You need a good attorney and that is the one who hung on the cross in the place of sinners. Just beg him to let you in. Start that life now. Lord Jesus, we so need to treasure what you have said in your word. So stir us as we complete our time together, coming before your table, asking you to be glorified in our homes, in our lives. Bring sinners, and that includes all of us in this room, to believe this gospel. We come to you through our risen Savior.